Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Hockey Journey Podcast. Episode number 74, Leadership, Part 2. Presented to you by OnlineHockeyTraining.com. I'm your host, Coach Lance Pitlick. If you're new here, please make sure you subscribe so you won't miss out on any future episodes. Before we take a selfie, send it to our bestie and begin this conversation. If you want to learn more about me, my hockey experiences, that I have the world's largest database of off-ice stick handling, passing, and hockey shooting drills, what I know, and most importantly, how I've been helping hockey players get really good with a stick and puck, just head on over to OnlineHockeyTraining.com and gain instant access to my 10-part video series where I'll show you everything. Consider it my gift to you. Lastly, if you live in Minnesota or are visiting the state of hockey sometime soon and you want to schedule an in-person off-ice stick skills lesson, I'd love to have the opportunity to show you my little world. Go to SweetHockeyCoach.com, that's SweetHockeyCoach.com, and watch the video on the homepage for instructions. Thanks, and I look forward to working with you sometime soon. As the first snowfall of winter has been deposited here in Minnesota, that can only mean one thing. The hockey season has begun. Being around the game of hockey my whole life, for a majority of the years, I was tied to a team each season as a player till I was 32 years of age or as a youth hockey coach for 17 years after that. A hockey season can have so many storylines by springtime. Individuals and teams might have nothing but success and flow the entire year, but that would be the experience of the minority as most of us travel a road that is packed with extremes in the next four to six months that will test our character and resolve. I remember being on or coaching several teams where I thought we really had a chance to do some damage, only to have the team be decimated by injury or sickness at critical times where we couldn't recover. COVID was the perfect example of this as it forced teams not to think too far in the future and they learn how to really battle when their backs were up against the wall. During some of these tough stretches, there are some positives and new characters that emerge. As top players may be out, a secondary player gets more minutes, opportunity, and all of a sudden flourishes and takes their game to another level. I never noticed it as a player, but as a coach, you can see things from a different perspective. As I worked my way up to the older levels of coaching, Peewee, Bantam, and high school, it became pretty consistent. There are two types of players, players who lead and players who don't. Leaders are not better hockey players than non-leaders. Some verbally lead by being the funny guy, the chatterbox, and always keeping things light. Others lead by an incredible work ethic and practices and games. But where you really saw who the leaders weren't was when in a high-pressure cooker tournament or rival game and it goes into overtime. There are players who say they want to be on the ice, a chance to be the hero, but they really don't and would prefer to be a spectator over possibly being the GOAT. But there's another group of players who want to be on the ice. They have a different confidence that sets them apart, and I don't know if it's because they aren't scared or nervous, or have they figured out that if you want to have a chance at the big prize or moment, you have to be willing to risk it all. Sometimes the moment is a pass, shot, or save. Other times, it can be making a diving clearing play or standing in front of a slap shot in the dying seconds. All big moments take courage to accept the challenge and do the best you can possibly do. Some of you out there may already be on a path of leadership. 
Others maybe haven't thought about it much until now. What I'd like to do with the rest of this episode is to share with you some quotes from some books that help me learn more about what leadership is and how to acquire more leadership qualities. I considered myself a quiet, lead-by-example type player, but by no means am I an expert in the field. But there are many who have made the topic of leadership their life's work, and I'd like to share with you some of their most important and impactful findings with the hope that the wisdom you're about to hear will help you become a little better version of yourself. For the following books I'm going to reference, know that I'm only scratching the surface of all the learning nuggets in each of the titles. If something resonates with you from a certain book by the end of this episode, I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of your own and read it in its entirety. I'll put the links to each of the titles in the description. Ready to get our leadership on? Let's begin. Book number one, On Becoming a Leader, by Warren Bennis. Quote number one, On Becoming a Leader is based on the assumption that leaders are people who are able to express themselves fully. By this I mean that they know who they are, what their strengths and weaknesses are, and how to fully deploy their strengths and compensate for their weaknesses. They also know what they want, why they want it, and how to communicate what they want to others in order to gain their cooperation and support. Finally, they know how to achieve their goals. The key to full self-expression is understanding oneself and the world, and the key to understanding is learning from one's own life and experience. Becoming a leader isn't easy, just as becoming a doctor or a poet isn't easy, and those who claim otherwise are fooling themselves. But learning to lead is a lot easier than most of us think it is, because each of us contains the capacity for leadership. At bottom, becoming a leader is synonymous with becoming yourself. It's precisely that simple, and it's also that difficult. So let's get started. End quote. Quote number two, leadership. Let's start with the basics. Leaders come in every size, shape, and disposition. Short, tall, neat, sloppy, young, old, male, and female. Nevertheless, they all seem to share some, if not all, of the following ingredients. The first basic ingredient of leadership is a guiding vision. The leader has a clear idea of what he or she wants to do, professionally and personally, and the strength to persist in the face of setbacks, even failures. Unless you know where you're going and why, you cannot possibly get there. The second basic ingredient of leadership is passion. The underlying passion for the promises of life, combined with a very particular passion for a vocation, a profession, a course of action. The leader loves what he or she does and loves doing it. The next basic ingredient of leadership is integrity. I think there are three essential parts of integrity, self-knowledge, candor, and maturity. Integrity is the basis of trust, which is not as much an ingredient of leadership as it is a product. It is the one quality that cannot be acquired, it must be earned. Two more ingredients of leadership are curiosity and daring. Leaders wonder about everything, want to learn as much as they can, are willing to take risks, experiment, try new things. They do not worry about failure, but embrace errors, knowing they will learn from them. Learning from adversity is another theme that comes up again and again in this book, often with different spins. Benny continues, broad education, 
boundless curiosity, boundless enthusiasm, contagious optimism, belief in people and teamwork, willingness to take risks, devotion to long-term growth rather than short-term profit, commitment to excellence, adaptive capacity, empathy, authenticity, integrity, and vision. End quote. Quote number three, self-invention equals key to leadership. I cannot stress too much the need for self-invention. To be authentic is literally to be your own author. The words derive from the same Greek root, to discover your own naive energies and desires, and then to find your own way of acting on them. When you've done that, you are not existing simply in order to live up to an image posited by the culture or by some other authority or by a family tradition. When you write your own life, then no matter what happens, you have played the game that was natural for you to play. It is your task to break out of such limits and live up to your potential to keep the covenant with your youthful dreams. End quote. Quote number four. Leaders trust their blessed impulse. Do you? A part of whole brain thinking includes learning to trust what Emerson called the blessed impulse, the hunch, the vision that shows you in a flash the absolutely right thing to do. Everyone has these visions. Leaders learn to trust them. I want to remind you here of something Norman Lear said regarding the profound influence that Emerson's voices to the contrary. I don't know when I started to understand that there was something divine about that inner voice. I certainly didn't in high school, college, or even in young manhood. But somewhere along the line, I appreciate that too. How is it possible that as a writer, I can go to bed a thousand times with a second act problem and wake up with the answer? Some inner voice. To go with that, which I confess I don't do all the time, is the purest, truest thing we have. And when we forgo our own thoughts and opinions, they end up coming back to us from the mouths of others. They come back with an alien majesty. So the lesson is, you believe it. When I've been the most effective, I follow that inner voice. Following that blessed impulse is, I think, basic to leadership. This is how guiding visions are made real. End quote. Bonus quote number five. Expressing yourself versus proving yourself. Some people are born knowing what they want to do and even how to do it. The rest of us aren't so lucky. We have to spend some time figuring out what to do with our lives. Vague goals such as, I just want to be happy, or I want to live well, or I want to make the world a better place, or even I want to be very, very rich, are nearly useless. What do you want? The majority of us go through life often very successfully without ever asking, much less answering, the most basic question. The most basic answer, of course, is that you want to express yourself fully, for that is the most basic human drive. As one friend put it, we all want to learn how to use our own voices, and it has led some of us to the peak and some of us to the depths. How can you best express you? End quote. Bonus quote number six, trust. Four ingredients to generating plus sustaining. The underlying issue in leading from voice is trust. In fact, I believe that trust is the underlying issue in not only getting people on your side, but having them stay there. There are four ingredients leaders have that generate and sustain trust. 
Number one, constancy. Whatever surprises leaders themselves may face, they don't create any for the group. Leaders are all of a piece. They stay the course. Number two, congruity. Leaders walk their talk. In true leaders, there's no gap between the theories they espouse and the life they practice. Number three, reliability. Leaders are there when it counts. They are ready to support their co-workers in the moments that matter. Number four, integrity. Leaders honor their commitments and promises. When those four factors are in place, people will be on your side. Again, these are the kind of things that can't be taught. They can only be learned. End quote. And bonus quote number seven. World-class leaders? Will you be one of them? Becoming a leader is not an orderly path. It is a fitful, often painful process that involves wrong turns and dead ends before great strides are made. Usually, some transformative event or experience is central to finding one's voice, learning how to engage others through shared meaning, and acquiring the other skills of leadership. FDR's lifetime struggle with polio was most certainly his crucible of leadership. Instead of simply enduring hard times, we have to seize every opportunity for transformation they afford. In recent weeks, as the stock market rocked and rolled, I thought of what Abigail Adams had written to John Quincy Adams in the turbulent days of 1780. These are the hard times in which a genius should wish to live. Great necessities call forth great leaders. It is significant, I think, that Adams chose the plural leaders. It is easy to forget that we need more than one gifted leader at a time. At the founding of the United States, when our population was less than 4 million, we had six towering leaders, Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison, Franklin, and Adams. Now that we number more than 304 million people, we are surely capable of yielding at least 600 world-class leaders in this country alone. Will you be one of them? End quote. Book number two, Lead Yourself First, Inspiring Leadership Through Solitude, by Raymond M. Kethledge and Michael S. Irwin. Quote number one, To lead others, you must first lead yourself. That, ultimately, is the theme of this book. Leadership, as Dwight Eisenhower defined it, is the art of getting someone else to do something that you want done because he wants to do it. That does not mean that leadership amounts to using people. Like anyone else, a leader must recognize that each person is an end in himself. It means, instead, to make others embrace your goals as their own. But to do that, you must first determine your goals. And you must do that with enough clarity and conviction to hold fast to your goals even when, inevitably, there are great pressures to yield from them. To develop that clarity and conviction of purpose and the moral courage to sustain it through adversity requires something that one might not associate with leadership. That something is solitude. End quote. Quote number two, solitude in the input age. Solitude has been instrumental to the effectiveness of leaders throughout history, but now they, along with everyone else, are losing it with hardly any awareness of the fact. Before the information age, which one could also call the input age, leaders naturally found solitude any time they were physically alone 
or when walking from one place to another, or while standing in line. Like a great wave that saturates everything in its path, however, handheld devices deliver immeasurable quantities of information and entertainment that now have virtually everyone instead staring down at their phones. Society did not make a considered choice to surrender the bulk of its time for reflection in favor of time spent reading tweets or texts. Yet, with an awareness of what we have lost, each of us can choose to reclaim it. And leaders in particular, whose actions by definition affect not only themselves, have more than a choice. They have an obligation. A leader has not only permission, but a responsibility to seek out periods of solitude. End quote. Quote number three, Solitude's Big Four. Clarity is often a difficult thing for a leader to obtain. Concerns of the present tend to loom larger than potentially greater concerns that lie farther away. Some decisions by their nature present greater complexity whose many variables must align a certain way for a leader to succeed. Compounding the difficulty, now more than ever, is what ergonomists call information overload, where a leader is overrun with inputs via emails, meetings, and phone calls that only distract and clutter his thinking. Solitude offers ways for leaders to obtain greater clarity. A leader who thinks through a complex problem by hard analytic work, as Eisenhower did before D-Day, can identify the conditions necessary to solve it. A leader who silences the din, not only around her mind, but inside it, can then hear the delicate voice of intuition, which may have already made connections that her conscious mind has not. End quote. Quote number four, MLK's Moral Courage. King had been told the same thing, and he knew that the peril went a step further. Black Americans have long identified with the Israelites of the Old Testament, who were persecuted by the Pharaoh. After Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, they wander the desert for 40 years. Finally, God tells Moses to, Get thee up this mountain, from whose top God says he will allow Moses to see the promised land. And God says he will give this land unto the children of Israel for a possession. But God will not let Moses himself go there. Instead, God says, Moses will die on the mountain. Moses then climbs up the mountain, sees the promised land, and dies. End quote. Bonus quote number five. F-O-M-O. Get over it. In some quarters, there is a fear of missing out. A fear that, if one unplugs from email or news services or social media, even for a few hours, they'll be less current. A few hours less to be exact than their peers. And indeed, that is true. But tracking all these inputs is surrendered to the Lilliputians. One simply cannot engage in anything more than superficial thought when cycling back and forth between these tweets and work. And most of the inputs are piecemeal, and thus worthless anyway. As with our obsession with smartphones, one needs to make a choice about whether to engage in this kind of practice. And no one serious about his responsibilities will choose to engage in it. End quote. And bonus quote number six, how to change the course of history. Let's. The effect of this solitude upon Churchill is hard to overstate. Churchill was a romantic who believed his nation was centered upon principles that, as Churchill himself put it, 
where at first a distant glimmer through the primeval mists, but that as the centuries marched forward, emerged as gleaming ideals whose light then shone across the centuries that followed. Churchill believed further that great men, possessed of great emotion that these ideals inspire, could change the course of history and that he was such a man. And thus, night after night, as Churchill paced back and forth across his study, he delivered not only to his readers, but to himself, a verbal history that inspired unshakable convictions within his soul. Churchill's study of history gave him perspective as well. Churchill saw his time and his own actions in the sweep of history, whose protagonists, King Arthur and Alfred, among others, struggled against evil and adversity in their time, just as he struggled against those things in his. Their example reassured him in times of deep adversity, and the vibrancy of their legend, centuries later, revealed to him that in great adversity, there is opportunity for lasting honor and glory that, even if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, as he put it in June of 1940, his own deeds might yet be remembered. End quote. A quick word from our sponsor, Sniper's Edge Hockey. Sniper's Edge Hockey is your one-stop shop for your at-home hockey training needs on and off the ice. Find the perfect start to your at-home training area with slick tiles, synthetic ice, or a rink liner. Or upgrade your home setup with one of our top quality training tools to help you work on soft hands, all of your deeks and dangles, perfect your one-timer, and improve the power and accuracy of your shot. Find it all online and in stock for immediate shipping at snipersedgehockey.com. And book number three, It Worked For Me, In Life and Leadership, by General Colin Powell. Quote number one, I love stories. In the course of my career, I've gathered a number of them that mean a lot to me. Most come from my military life. I was in the military from age 17 as an ROTC cadet until I was a retired GI at age 56. Others came from my service as Secretary of State or National Security Advisor. Yet others came to me as I just wandered through life. In this book, I want to share with you a selection of these stories and experiences that have stayed with me over the years. Each one of them taught me something important about life and leadership. I offer them to you for whatever use you may wish to make of them. As you will see, there are no conclusions or recommendations, just my observations. The chapters are freestanding. You can read them straight through or jump in anywhere. Everyone has life lessons and stories. These are mine. All I can say is that they worked for me. End quote. Quote number two, the 13 rules. Shortly after I arrived at Forzcom, Arms Forces Command, Parade Magazine, the long-running Sunday supplement, with a readership of more than 50 million people, asked to do a cover story about me and my new assignment. One of those short personal articles aimed at Americans reading their Sunday newspapers over coffee. Its author needed a hook to close the piece. One of my secretaries, Sergeant Kami Brown, urged him to ask me about the couple of dozen snippets of paper shoved under the glass cover on my desktop, quotes and aphorisms that I had collected or made up over the years. David called and asked if I would read off a few. The 13 I read him appeared in a sidebar in the article. After they were first printed in Parade, to my great surprise, the 13 rules caught on. 
Over the past 23 years, my assistants have given out hundreds of copies of that list in many different forms. They have been PowerPointed and flashed around the world on the internet. Here are my rules and the reasons I've hung on to them. End quote. Here's a super quick look at the list. Number one, it ain't as bad as you think. It will look better in the morning. Number two, get mad, then get over it. Number three, avoid having your ego so close to your position that when your position falls, your ego goes with it. Number four, it can be done. Number five, be careful what you choose. You may get it. Number six, don't let adverse facts stand in the way of a good decision. Number seven, you can't make someone else's decisions. You shouldn't let someone else make yours. Number eight, check small things. Number nine, share credit. Number 10, remain calm, be kind. Number 11, have a vision, be demanding. Number 12, don't take counsel of your fears or naysayers. Number 13, perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. That's a pretty solid list, don't you think? Quote number three, perpetual optimism. In the military, we are always looking for ways to leverage up our forces. Having greater communications and command and control over your forces than your enemy has over his is a force multiplier. Having greater logistics capability than the enemy is a force multiplier. Having better trained commanders is a force multiplier. Perpetual optimism, believing in yourself, believing in your purpose, believing you will prevail, and demonstrating passion and confidence is a force multiplier. If you believe and have prepared your followers, the followers will believe. End quote. Quote number four, it can be done. It can be done. This familiar quotation is on a desk plaque given to me by the great humorist Art Bourgeois. Once again, it is more about attitude than reality. Maybe it can't be done, but always start out believing you can get it done until facts and analysis pile up against it. Have a positive and enthusiastic approach to every task. Don't surround yourself with instant skeptics. At the same time, don't shut out skeptics and colleagues who give you solid counter views. It can be done should not metamorphose into a blindly can-do approach, which leaves you running into brick walls. I try to be an optimist, but I try not to be stupid. End quote. Bonus quote number five, the zone of calm. Few people make sound or sustainable decisions in an atmosphere of chaos. The more serious the situation, usually accompanied by a deadline, the more likely everyone will get excited and bounce around like water on a hot skillet. At those times, I try to establish a calm zone, but retain a sense of urgency. Calmness protects order, ensures that we consider all the possibilities, restores order when it breaks down, and keeps people from shouting over each other. You are in a storm. The captain must steady the ship, watch all the gauges, listen to all the department heads, and steer through it. If the leader loses his head, confidence in him will be lost and the glue that holds the team together will start to give way. So assess the situation, move fast, be decisive, but remain calm and never let them see you sweat. The calm zone is part of an emotional spectrum that I work to maintain. End quote. Bonus quote number six, plans. 
to be revised the moment execution starts. Plans are neither successful nor unsuccessful until they are executed. And the successful execution of a plan is more important than the plan itself. I was trained to expect a plan to need revision at the moment execution starts and to always have a bunch of guys in a back room thinking about what could go right or wrong and making contingency plans to deal with either possibility. The leader must be agile in thought and action, and he must be ready to revise a plan or dump it if it isn't working or if new opportunities appear. Above all, the leader must never be blinded by the perceived brilliance of his plan or personal investment in it. The leader must watch the execution from beginning to end and do what it tells him. End quote. And bonus quote number seven. Fear and failure are always present. I probably learned as much from my failures and my naysayers as from my supporting rabbis. Failure comes with experience. I recall a few years ago speaking at an elite and very highly structured Japanese high school. The kids were from good families and mostly very bright. After my remarks, designated kids from the honor roll lined up to ask me questions typed out on cards and fully vetted by their teachers. After the first couple of questions, I turned away from the line and invited questions from anyone in the audience, with my eyes particularly focused on the back rows where I used to try to sit. One girl about 13 years old raised her hand, and I called on her. Are you ever afraid, she asked. I'm afraid every day, she continued. I'm afraid to fail. How brave she was to ask that question in public in a very structured Japanese high school. Yes, I told her. I'm afraid of something every day, and I fail at something every day. Fear and failure are always present. Accept them as part of life and learn how to manage these realities. Be scared, but keep going. Being scared is usually transient. It will pass. If you fail, fix the causes and keep going. The room was deadly silent. Every one of the young high achievers had the same question before their mind, even if they were too scared to put a voice to it. End quote. I told you we were going to get our leadership on. What colossal idea jumped out at you? General Colin Powell's 13 rules is a good place to start. For me, what really stuck out was that there are some parts of leadership you can't acquire, you have to earn. Well, that concludes another episode of the Hockey Journey Podcast. I can't thank you enough for stopping by and listening. I hope you enjoyed this second podcast on leadership. If you think there's someone in your circle of family and friends that might like this episode as well, please share it with just one person. It will really help me in growing this hockey community. Again, I appreciate you being here. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, or submit a review. I hope to see you back here soon. And do me a favor, make someone close to you smile today. All the best, my friends.